This podcast was produced with the support of Jensen Australia and New Zealand. Jensen Silag Proprietary Limited. Views and opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the presenters alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinion of Jensen Silag Proprietary Limited or any employees thereof. Hey, this is Joe Bakmotsky and welcome to Simplify Cancer Podcast. Look, having been through cancer myself, I know exactly what it's like to be living with uncertainty. And, and that is even harder right now, right? And when we're living in the COVID-19 pandemic, this is even more challenging, especially for those of us that have one way or another have been touched by cancer. And, and now, more than ever, we need to find better ways of really navigating the everyday reality of life beyond cancer. And even you, you know, the restrictions might be changing, might even be relaxing. And we all kind of trying our best to, I guess, adjust to the new normal, right? But still a pandemic, right? We all want to do our best to stay safe, steady, and strong in this crazy time. And look, if you are worried about living with cancer in the time of pandemic, you're gonna love this conversation that we're having today with Christopher Steer, who is a medical oncologist who's not only a brilliant mind, but he's got a huge heart. So let's get into it. As a medical oncologist, I know that you are deeply involved in, in cancer treatment, in follow-ups, in research, in, in clinical trials. Christopher, what impact have you seen with the pandemic so far? We have a large number of patients from regional Australia uh, coming to receive standard chemotherapy and immunotherapy and radiation and follow-up at our centre. So, of course, patients need to travel to have their treatment to our centre, and that is the first, the first issue. As you may also be aware, patients with cancer tend to be older. The average age of patients with cancer in Australia is 67 years at first diagnosis. So that means a significant number of our patients are older. So here we have a large number of patients older having to travel to our centre for treatment. I would say uh, rightly so, uh, that uh, because our patients are going to be at risk of more severe infection should they contract the virus. We need to remember that we're all at risk of contracting the virus and the only thing that we can do to prevent infection is to not be uh, affected by it is, is to not be um, infected with it uh, the only thing that we that we can do is practice social distancing and good hygiene good hand hygiene and other practices that we're all well aware of now there is no prophylactic treatment there's no treatment once we get it. So we need to remember that the only thing we can do is practice good uh, physical distancing and hygiene. What does that mean for our patients coming to the cancer centre? They need to visit us as a centre and that would mean come in contact potentially with other people. Certainly for the patients with treatment, that's unavoidable. They need to come in here. We don't currently have a service where they can have treatment at home. But for the patients who do need to, uh, who, who, who aren't on treatment, sorry, for the patients who aren't on treatment, 
course, we have pivoted to telehealth as much as possible. So we're providing telephone and video consultations for our patients as much as possible. And look, as a regional cancer centre, as a medical oncology unit, we are quite used to doing this already. Telehealth is a core part of my business model, if you like. Telehealth is a core part of my care, and I conduct it with, uh, with my patients regularly. So what can we do for our patients? We can stop them coming in to seeing us. Uh, and when, if they do need to come in and treatment, we, of course, we need to change the, our management here. So how are our patients feeling? Well, they are, they are in the majority are fearful of this infection, rightfully so, and most of them are doing the right thing by staying at home if possible. Yeah, absolutely, Christopher. And there's so many challenges that uh, the pandemic brings to, uh, as you say, how, how people are taken in terms of the attitudes, in terms of in terms of the risk, and in terms of how you treat them. And uh, there is also, Christopher, so much that we hear about COVID-19 in the news. What is your take and what does someone who is potentially going through cancer treatment or going through follow-ups what do you think they absolutely need to know about the disease right now? So, unfortunately, as we are seeing an increased number of patients with COVID-19, mainly in Victoria, the uh, thing that our patients need to know in this regional cancer setting is that the likelihood of, the in, of them having infection is low, but it needs to be thought of. If they are worried, they should get tested. If they have any symptoms, they should get tested. If they're in contact with someone who, who, who has it, obviously, they need to go into uh, two weeks of quarantine. For patients, for example, are on treatment, we need to be aware that often treatment does cause immunosuppression. That means low immune systems. And we think, we're not entirely sure, but we think that this may uh, lead uh, patients to be at increased risk of severe infection. What we're mainly concerned about for our patients is what is the risk of severe infection? We know that that tends to be older adults. We know that mainly men are concerned, or more men than women uh, develop severe infection. We know that if you have comorbidities, such as uh, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart issues, you're at more risk of infection. Now, we think that immunosuppression and having cancer itself is something that puts you at high risk, and therefore we are very cautious with our patients. However, the fear of this, uh, of the severe infection, should not put us off adequate, appropriate anti-cancer therapy. I think in the, still in the current situation that people are more likely to run into trouble with some of their cancers sometimes than from uh, severe COVID-19. So as in everything, it is a balance and we need to weigh up what the risks and benefits of the treatment are in this new environment with every patient that we see. It is important to individualise care uh, one of my mantras in dealing with my older patients is adequate assessment yields appropriate care. So for our older adults, we know that a geriatric assessment 
leads to a better and adequate care and supportive care. And I think in this new pandemic, in this new environment, uh, it's very important to adequately assess our patients to individualise their care and make the decisions together. Yeah, that makes so much sense, Christopher. And I love how you put it into perspective that, uh, you know, while there is a great risk and with restrictions potentially, uh, you know, changing in depending on where you live, uh, we, we should always be safe and mindful of what we're doing and, and practicing everything that our, you know, our government and, and uh, our health departments recommending but it's so important to put it into perspective and to find that right balance between uh, you know, minimizing the risk, but at the same time getting the proper care that you need when it comes to cancer. That's right. Our public health, health experts are giving us the right advice. Following that advice is important. And unfortunately, the new lockdowns and border closures are an important part of managing this condition. When patients are on what is often the most difficult journey of their life, they do not need yet another obstacle. I think it's important to know that uh, A, you need to follow the advice of the experts and that uh, I would support the public health initiatives being taken in place, uh, but also that as specialists, as cancer care specialists, as cancer care teams, People like us and our teams at the Cancer Centre are here for our patients. If you're in doubt, ask, call, uh, but don't, um, don't just stay at home and, and wonder. Get, get advice if you're worried. Ask questions. It's very important. And we will try as much as we can to be here for you. Absolutely, Christopher. That makes so much sense. And what types of questions would you encourage patients to ask you or their own specialist in this time? So often the most difficult time for our patients, as you're aware, is their first visit. So you've been diagnosed with cancer, the surgeon, the, ger the um, general practitioner has um, made the diagnosis and, uh, and the patients come to the oncologists in the cancer centre for answers, reassurance and treatment. And the first visit is so important. It's where the relationship is established. It's where the plan is made. It's where you know, the patients find out really what the, what the problems are, hopefully. So that is the most important time. My patients uh, need to come in to my, my office hopefully with somebody else. So the first thing I would say, rather than what questions to ask, would be make sure there's someone with you, if possible, who can help you ask the questions, but more importantly, remember what the answers are. I've had some one patient today say, well, you should have someone to, uh, to, to join you to help ask the questions and listen to the answers, and then another person to write them down. So... <laughs> So the team, you know, we have a team to care for you, but often it is the team of the family or, the, yeah, the spouse or, you know, friends, sometimes a neighbour, you know, someone who's there for you uh, uh, as, a, as part of your team, as if you're a patient coming for the first appointment. I can't stress it more often. 
my heart sinks when I go to the waiting room, I call a name and, and a, one person walks you know, on their own to my office and they don't have someone with them and support. Now, that happens for many reasons. Sometimes there is nobody to support the patients. But often on this very difficult journey, you need help and support. And I would, and would say it's really important to have someone with you. And then, yes, they can ask questions. They can listen to the questions and, and write it down. Write down your questions before you come in, if possible. And uh, there are a number of different sites. The Cancer Council provides a good list of questions for your oncologist before you come in. And then what kind of questions should, should you ask? Well, of course, what, what cancer do I have? What is the stage? What are the, what are the treatments? And really it comes down to then when my answers are, well, what are our options? What are our options for treatment? And care, and and usually I would go through those, including ones which people might think are possible. For example, surgery, even when the situation is is not operable, you need to say, mm, yeah, we would like to do surgery, but for this reason we can't. Things like that. So go through every option that the patient might think about, and then um, hopefully they will leave the appointment with an informed opinion about the way forward, a proper plan, and then someone who's also witnessed that and they can talk to them on their way home afterwards. That's what I see is some of the vital things that happen at that really important first appointment. It's just such a, such a critical thing that you raised, Christopher. I remember uh, when I went to see um, my oncologist for the first time getting treatment, I have almost no recollection of the first conversation whatsoever, and I was just happy that um, I did have my wife uh, and my uh, and my mom with me to kind of be there and support me, and also just kind of figure out what what we need to do next. So I'm really glad that you're bringing this up. And Christopher, is there anything that you think in this time as well, just uh, that people want to be asking yourself or the specialist with respect? to follow-up appointments or treatment and, you know, with the pandemic? How does telehealth work? How does all of that fit in? People often ask, what can I do? What can I do to help the treatment? What can I do to stop the cancer coming back? And certainly one of the things that I say to my patients in advising them about whether or not they should have treatment at all. First of all, follow the experts and have the treatment if it's the best thing for you. Then, if you are on treatment or even just in follow-up, what can you do in this pandemic to help yourself and avoid the uh, infection and avoid the seriousness? Of course, follow the advice of the experts, as we've said. Physical distancing, uh, meaning staying away from people, hand hygiene, and other things in when there's areas of high community transmission masks may well be something that we would be recommending currently it's not standard and there's a lot of debate about that but if you apply masks with and this is cloth masks not the full-on respirators but cloth masks with physical distancing then there are some studies suggest that, that that is something extra that you can do to first of all, stop you from getting the infection. But if you do have it, if you're unfortunate to have it, then you can stop it from passing on to others. So 
there is evidence that 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 masks help, but in only in certain circumstances, and they're currently not recommended in general hospitals, for example, here in um, in the regions in our cancer centre where there is no community transmission. So there's simple physical things. Unfortunately, there's no drugs you can take. You know, people say, "Oh, can I do anything to boost my immune system?" Like, well, exercise, diet, get plenty of sleep. These are simple lifestyle things that you should be able to do to boost your immune system. I do not think that there is any evidence that there is a medication, unfortunately so-called natural remedies, something you can take to boost your immune system. There's never been any pub, um, trials or science to show that that is possible, but simple lifestyle factors such as good exercise and sleep and having a good healthy diet would come under the heading of doing everything you can. Yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense, Christopher. I really like how you like you, you just speak plainly to it. And I think that this is what this is what I think we all need to hear. And what are some of the things that I guess older people need to consider as they adjust to life after cancer diagnosis? So our, our older adults, and for this we're talking about often patients over the age of 70 years, let's say, for example, are at risk of developing cancer. And then once they develop cancer, often due to the presence of comorbidities and other issues, are at risk from the complications of the treatments and are at risk of, the, uh, of having more problems with just the cancer itself in many ways. Despite that, as I say, if we assess our patients adequately, and adequately manage their comorbidities and give appropriate supportive care, I do not think that older adults should be denied appropriate treatment, even curative treatment or difficult treatment, if, if they're fit enough. We should not treat our patients on the basis of age alone at any time. Yes, people older, over the age of 85 or 90 are often frail, but not always. And uh, frailty as a concept is something we could talk about at length and fits into the uh, assessment um, scenario. But in general, our older adults need to be treated with respect, respect and treated appropriately. Now, what can our older adults with cancer actually do to uh, help themselves through their journey? First of all, have some support, ask for help if needed. And there's so many supportive medicines and things that we can give to try and through the, get through the treatment toxicity, such as good anti-sickness medicines, as you're well aware, um, medicines sometimes for the bowel problems that people get on the anti-sickness medicines. Uh, there are things we can give to help them through the journey and this, through, this, through the side effects. So we can give things, we can do things to help our older patients through the journey. And of course, there's the teams, there's supportive care teams, nurses, um, the allied health, the social workers, the, the, the teams of people often in the cancer centres who are there just to help our, our older patients. There's regular GP visits, for example. You know, there's keeping everyone in the loop and keeping it the supportive care team together. And then what can you do for yourself as an older adult? Well, keep active, keep healthy, Keep exercising. Now, that is difficult in times of social distancing and physical distancing, but keeping active is crucial. And at the same time, of course, in this pandemic, 
unfortunately, keeping away from other people is as much as possible is is difficult. So here we have a number of challenges, but there's certainly many things we can we can do. Where can you go for advice? Well, as I say, the yeah the Cancer Council helpline is uh, is something we would we would recommend. But there will be uh, a local cancer care coordinators often, the oncology nurses, your doctors and your GPs who will be able to provide you with good, solid scientific advice to help you on your journey. Yeah, absolutely, Christopher. And I think it speaks to a lot is, is finding uh, the courage to kind of speak up and, and ask questions. I mean, I remember from my own experience, you know, that it's 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 really mirrors exactly what you are talking about that uh, there is a lot of uh but you know potential side effects that can be managed or kind of helped when you ask the right questions of 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 the oncology nurse and you try to understand what's happening or when you you know maybe try to ring up your specialist and say hey what's going on here so you are able to really understand what is happening and that takes away a lot of the worry, a lot of the fear, whether you are in active treatment or maybe um, you're living with cancer or perhaps, you know, even when hopefully you've passed active treatment and, and you're in the survivorship stage. Do you notice that that gives people more or greater sense of control over their lives or kind of some restores some of that calm, do you think? That is such an important issue. I think this sense of control. Patients who sit in my office talking to me, they are they are often faced with something that for the first time in their lives they cannot control. And the cancer is often something which, yeah, you can't just wish it away and you can't control it without help. And sometimes even with our treatments, they prove to be uh, uncontrollable. Yes. Yeah, so that is a very important concept which we do need to recognise, and I think it goes back to what we might have said earlier about what patients feel they can do. And against the cancer or more the point for themselves to help feel like they might bring their, some control back into their lives, be it exercising and feeling better and getting fitter enough to have their treatment, uh, simple things like that, something which, which will give them more control over their, this, this journey that they're on. I think that is uh, a vital thing. Um, other experts can help them bring that control and, and even help them through working out what's important for them would be the psychosocial support that, that the experts in the cancer centres can give. Now, unfortunately, our wellness centre here at the hospital is closed. Now, this is an important organisation formed by patients with volunteers, but through community support, they've been able to fund, for example, a full-time psychologist who is so busy helping each individual patient through their journey from a psychological perspective. The concept of, of psycho-oncology and that effort of support is so important. And so our community has recognised this. Unfortunately, our health service is, is unable to fund it fully. And so 
through amazing donations from our local community, the organisation that runs our wellness centre is, is able to fund a full-time psychologist. We really need two in our centre. And of course, with the pandemic, the problem is that face-to-face -face visits are somewhat difficult. But our psychologist has also pivoted to telehealth, and that has been very effective. And she continues her really important work in our region to look after the mental health of our patients as they go through their journey. And so this is very important. I remember when I, I was in my oncologist's office and he laid out different treatment options and, and he said, well, we can go with chemotherapy, we can go with radiation. So, you know, here's all the pros and cons and have a think about what you want and then, you know, we can kind of, uh, you can decide. And I was like, do, how do you expect me to decide? I'm just some guy. You're the professional. <laughs> so it took me a while to really come back to, to understand how empowering that is for the person who is dealing with cancer themselves to make decisions because I think it gives you a, some measure of control and it speaks to what you're talking about, to what matters to you, what is important to you and to your life, right? That's right. These decisions are important, but as you rightly say in your own circumstance, they can be overwhelming. So if possible, I try and give my patients a framework which to base their decisions on, listen to them carefully, try and determine what matters most, but equally often provide more options. It's a really complex decision, and I come back to the first consultation issue that we erased in the beginning. Sometimes the things that what matter most to the daughter of the patient is different from what matters most to her mother, who is the one facing the decisions. And you have to factor in these um, complexities uh, in family relationships and, uh, and, uh, and the, the different people in the room when you're guiding people through these difficult decisions. That can be overwhelming, and, uh, but are really, really important because we're talking often about people with incurable conditions who are going to be certainly my patients for the rest of their lives, and I need to get to know them and help them through these, at times, overwhelming decisions. These are, in ordinary times, very difficult to make. Here we are in COVID-19 pandemic when we've got to work out whether our treatment puts the patients at more risk of severe disease. Yes. My other thing I say about older patients with cancer is these things take time. I cannot rush these kind of decisions. Sometimes you need more than one visit, but um, it takes time to assess our patients adequately, give them the options, listen to them, and then finally find uh, uh, the right treatment path for the individual who's with you. Christopher, what about the cancer survivors, are they at a greater risk of being impacted by COVID-19? And what is, uh, you know, the greatest impact or consideration there? So Joe, how do you define a cancer survivor? Cancer survivor, I would define it as anyone who has finished active treatment. Yeah. So there's a few definitions around this, which is why I asked. Because some people think that a cancer survivor, your survivorship journey starts 
when you're first diagnosed, so you're a cancer survivor from day one, very important to have your flu vaccination so you don't get uh, another infection to put you more at risk of, of the issues with COVID-19. So yeah, that comes back to doing everything you can for yourself. And then as you go out and your immune system's picking up and you're seeing the, the doctors less, really you know, often the situation is you're back to relative normal from a COVID-19 severity perspective, unless there's things that you can't control, like you're older, you're a bloke, you've got other comorbidities, and if that happens, then, yeah, you need to stay away from the risk of getting it as much as possible. And there we have visiting the hospital less and using telehealth to stay at home and have your care. We're here for you, even after you've finished your active treatment. Make sure if you have a problem and a question that you seek help, either through the GP or directly with our, with our clinic, if you have a question, you know, don't be scared of it because we're here to help. Absolutely. And Christopher, how important is it to get tested for coronavirus if you do feel unwell? Yes, well, the current advice in the Australian context is that the testing is vitally important that testing is available. Testing does not cause significant side effects in itself, if you like. It is, it is uncomfortable. It is a, a very long cotton bud, if you like, shoved to the back of your nose to get those important cells at the back of the throat to which harbour the virus if they're there. You've got to get an appropriate sample and it's not comfortable However, it's important to have the test. And so if you have, the current advice would appear to be that if you have any symptoms at all concerned, then have the COVID-19 test. It's vitally important. And don't come to hospital if you feel sick. <laughs> that sounds weird, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know don't, don't come, you know, or ring first. You know, if you, if you don't just... Share it around, you know, uh, think about it before. We're going to have to think about this very carefully now. I uh, take part in a survey every Monday morning. It's a flu survey. It's an influenza symptom survey. I'd have to check the, the actual address because in my mind I don't, don't have it. But because every Monday morning I get asked a series of questions and there's 70 or 80,000 people who are involved in this survey every Monday morning and it asks whether you have a sore throat, temperature, cough, and it's usually used for influenza um, monitoring. And you can see in previous years the influenza has been quite high, but this year with all the physical distancing, the rates of the normal influenza are really low and the rate of these symptoms around Australia and New Zealand are really low. It shows the power of physical distancing to avoid these kind of symptoms and these kind of illnesses. I think the, the other side of that is, you know, when, when it's business as usual and we all go to work with a bit of a sniffle, with a bit of, you know, a cough or feeling unwell, and business as usual says, ah, oh, you've got to, you'll be right. Well, we show that we, it's very easy to pass on these kind of respiratory illnesses to each other and the rates of infections are quite high and that's part of what we're used to. Maybe that's going to change in 
in the post-pandemic era. Who knows? Yeah, that might be uh, that might be one positive thing that comes out of it is how do we manage it going forward? And and so, Christopher, what are some of the best ways? I know we kind of touched on on some of those some of that already, but what are some of the I guess best ways to keep yourself in good shape during the pandemic, especially if you're an, an older person who's living with cancer. Well, once again, Joe, I think we need to think about this in the physical fitness and in mental fitness. So, how do you stay in shape physically and mentally? Such a great question. Like um, cancer care, it's individual. It depends on who you are, how fit you are already, and what you like and uh, what type of person you are, what kind of support you have, where you live. These kind of things do, of course, need to be uh, factored in. I find it interesting that in the studies of exercise in patients with cancer, often it's the patients who are the most frail, who benefit the most. They've got the most to gain. It's the most, most interesting when we look at these Studies of exercise in people before a big operation, for example, in the studies of prehabilitation rather than rehabilitation, we find that it's the patients who um, are almost most at risk that have the most advantage. So another thing, you know, don't um, just assume that you, if you're frail, you don't benefit from even simple exercise such as, um, you know, strengthening the core muscles, for example. So I think... Activity is good. Certainly not being active is bad. I think how you keep in good shape, clearly staying physically active, eating the right things, getting enough sleep. That's important. And then mentally, as we've touched on, it's, it is going to be hard on everyone. Some of these catchphrases like we're all in it together, well, they, they, they're okay to be said, but really when it comes down to it, uh, there's an awful lot of loneliness out there ordinarily. There's an, an awful lot of people now having to stay alone, uh, unsupported, and uh, and fearful of any physical interaction. So this is a an awfully uh, an interesting new time that we find ourselves in, and mental health and support of people mentally through as many avenues as we can is vital. There's probably a lot of Trials looking at this, I know, I know psycho-oncology is a really important area that we've touched on already, but psycho-oncology in the COVID pandemic becomes so much more important as, uh, as we all battle through this individually with or without our support. And we need to be agile, but also remember that we will be able, should be able to continue care for our patients as much as possible, with as much continuity as possible, and give them the care that they need despite these challenges. Thank you so much, Christopher. Thank you for your time. Thank you for just what you do in the world and supporting cancer patients and cancer survivors in such a difficult time. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. This podcast was produced with the support of Jensen Australia and New Zealand. Jensen Silek Proprietary Limited. Views and opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the presenters alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinion of Jensen Silek Proprietary Limited or any employees thereof.